all sermons are a challenge and that you have to try and prayerfully interpret the scriptures and take them into a message which is going to be helpful for people. Some passages present more of a challenge than others, and this sermon is one that I did find a bit more of a challenge. It's from the letter of Revelations, written by the Apostle John. It's from chapter 3, verses 14 to 22, the section which is known as the letter to the church of Laodicea and I gave it my best shot. And I think, if I'm honest, I think it hangs together. But you might need to hang in there to see how it hangs together. Anyways, let us begin. You are listening to a sermon from the Pilgrim Path with your preacher Samuel S. Thorpe. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for revealing yourself to us in your Son, so that we might know you and walk out with you out of our sinful past and into eternal life as your children. May your Holy Spirit rest upon my lips and guide me as I proclaim the gospel of your Son, Jesus. And may those who have an ear hear what the Spirit has to say to us as a church as individuals, and as your children. Amen. Jesus, in this vision to John of Patmos, says, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Here we find that the Lord of all of space and time, the first to ever come back from the dead for good, is identifying himself as the Amen. Now, the word Amen is one that we use so often as Christians that it can often seem to have no real meaning, no real value. It almost becomes a theological punctuation mark that we just put at the end of prayers as that's what we do. However, when Jesus says that he is the Amen as a noun with a capital A and a definite article, he's not saying that he's a mere technicality, but rather he's placing himself at the centre stage. He is the headline act upon all of reality. You see, the word Amen is an indication of truth. When we declare Amen, we are confirming the reliability of something else that has been said or done. When we add our Amen to prayers, we stand as witnesses declaring, we believe this to be true, or we have faith that God will do this. We see something else, and we affirm its truthfulness. And yet when Jesus says he is the Amen, he isn't referring to something else, but rather he is testifying concerning himself. He is declaring that he himself is truth. But what is this truth of Jesus? Well, if we want to know the truth of Jesus, we have to look at what he did. And we are blessed today to have an ancient wealth of ancient writings that we call scripture, which testify to who Jesus was and the things that he said and did when he lived in Galilee 2,000 years ago. And we're all familiar with the stories of Jesus, with the fishes and the loaves and walking around Jerusalem, teaching and doing miracles and signs and wonders that divided public opinion. 
We know that he was betrayed by one of his own disciples, the religious leaders. We know that they had him killed on a cross, one of the most brutal and painful ways to die. And yet, we know that although he did thus far everything that humans do, they live and then they die, because that's what they do, we know that this isn't the end. Because three days later, Jesus comes back to life. This has never happened before or since. The empty corpse that had been laid in the grave for three days had the breath of God, the Holy Spirit, fill it once more and bring it back to life. The rotting flesh was restored. His heart started pumping again. And his flesh grew and knitted back together over the wounds, leaving scars that would testify to his death those three days before. Now, we don't have an actual scriptural account as to exactly what happened in the resurrection. That's just how I picture it. But the point I'm trying to make is that the Jesus that died on the cross and the Jesus that came back to life are one and the same person. And it is this living person that this truth is about. It is to this event that Jesus is the faithful witness, and by this event that we see that he is indeed the ruler over all of God's creation. But as impressive as this is, what does it actually mean that a man died and came back to life? Well, as with all good stories, we have to return to the beginning. We have to remember that when God created Adam, Adam gains his life from the breath of God entering into the dust. And he is born and brought up to live, into, to live in life with communion with both God and with other people, such as Eve. And yet he fails in this fellowship with God through disobedience and sin. When Adam and Eve ate that forbidden fruit, they didn't just do a bad thing. They rejected the relationship they had with God, that relationship that was itself the source of life. And so... Adam's rejection of this communion relationship initiated by God severs his connection with the source of life. And if, when we have a healthy relationship with God, we have life, when we have a broken and dysfunctional one, we have death. Adam's offspring, children that would eventually multiply and become all the people of all the world, are born into this broken relationship. They do not know God. And the eventual result of not knowing God, of relational death, is physical death. Now, by damaging their relationship with God, they not only damaged their relationship, but they damaged themselves. They were no longer in and of themselves good, but sinful. And having damaged what they were, they were unable to do anything that was actually and purely good, unless they lived in close and healthy relationship with God. Throughout the Old Testament, this relationship is mediated by covenants, a series of promises where people and their responsibilities to God and God's responsibilities to his people are laid out so that everybody knows where they stand. And as a part of this, God was aware that his people could not be freely perfect all the time because they were broken and didn't have the right relationship. And so he institutes in Leviticus 16 a series of sacrifices so that when they have done something sinful, they can pay the price with a sacrifice. But these sacrifices weren't enough, because if you did a sacrifice, you were made right with God, you were healthy and in relationship. But any sin you did afterwards then broke that relationship again, and so you'd have to do yet another sacrifice, and another, and another. 
And so it is out of God's abundant love that he has for his people and out of his desire that people should live in a healthy relationship with him that God reveals himself by sending his own son to become flesh, to become fully human while still being fully God, and to live a pure and sinless life so that he might voluntarily offer himself up as the sacrifice, one last sacrifice that would last for all eternity. As I said earlier, the relational divide between humanity and God results in both the death of the relationship and death of the body. Now, physical death can only happen to someone whose relationship with God is dead. And so when Jesus, who was without sin, and therefore who was not experiencing the death of his relationship, was subjected to physical death upon the cross, something wholly unnatural is occurring. In order for the physical death to claim him, the relational death had to be enforced upon him. The relationship between the Father and the Son the whole love of the Holy Spirit had to be overcome. In that moment on the cross, all the weight of sin and death that has ever and will ever happen pressed against Jesus, trying to break his relationship with his Father. In that moment, it tried to wrestle the Son away from God, to kill him. And yet still physical death could not claim him. Death came only because Jesus did not count himself did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And so in order for him to destroy sin, he surrenders, he sacrifices himself. He breathes his last and gives up his spirit to the Father. In the words of the Creed, he suffered death and was buried. Yet this act of self-sacrifice, this act of love, expressed by Jesus on the cross, for both the people he was sacrificing himself for and for his love he has for his heavenly Father, was orders of magnitude greater than all the collective powers of sin and death. It is this act of love from Jesus on the cross that vanquishes death itself and shrugged off its grasping hand. And we read that on the third day he rose again. Now the fact that Jesus rose from the dead means that the union and communion relationship between man and God, established in his incarnate life, are finally actualized and remain valid beyond death, as an eternally prevailing reality for humanity as well as for God. That is, that the resurrected one, Jesus, he is the Amen. He is the faithful and true witness to God's victory over sin. He is a witness eternally, to the possibility of humanity once again living healthily in relationship to God the Father through the death and resurrection of his Son by the power of his Holy Spirit. The truth of Jesus, the Amen of Jesus, is that sin has died and that the breakdown in our relationship with God has been healed, but humanity is known and loved by God and can know and love God once again. And this time nothing can break it, As our other passage from Romans said that Norman just read out for us, Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from this love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who has loved us. For I am convinced 
that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And it is this Jesus that is speaking to Laodicea today. And he says to them, I know your deeds, but you are neither hot nor cold. And I wish, I wish that you were one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, I am preparing to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realise that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. Now this message seems like strong words to us today. However, it would have been even stronger then. It was fiercely countercultural to their society. Because we have to understand that Laodicea was built on a place that was destroyed by an earthquake in AD 64. And so it was built up very quickly again by the rich and wealthiest people in the land. It was a cosmopolitan, thriving centre of commerce and business. They were incredibly wealthy, famous for their manufacture of wonderful clothing made from pure black wool. And they had an impressive reputation for their medical school that was one of the best in the land. And this statement takes what they thought were their strengths and turns them into weaknesses. Because they think they've got it all sorted, they think they've got wealth, they think they have good life, they think they have all this medical stuff. But they're missing the point as to what we need for true life. And the worst thing is they simply don't care. It would be better for them to be opposed to the gospel and arguing against it and engaging with it because when you engage with the gospel there's a possibility and a chance that God will work through the gospel to reach out to those people. But when people are being lukewarm and inert and lazy and apathetic, it's really hard to engage with the gospel. It's really hard for God's power to shine in their life because they're just, bleh, there's nothing. And so what does Jesus say to them? He says, I counsel you. Look, as the Amen and the faithful witness who happens to be the Lord of all of space and time, who loves you more than anything, this is what I would recommend you do, so listen up. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, so that you can become rich. Gold refined in the fire passes through destruction and survives out the other side. The gold he's talking about is true life, where we will pass through death and still have a precious treasure of life and eternity with God. Unlike temporary wealth like money and riches and buildings. And he says, and he'll give you white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Now taking the white clothes inverts what they understood about the clothing industry. It's completely different to what they would have all been wearing. And as such, it works as a powerful image of righteousness and purity. And using a medical image to speak about clarity of understanding, Jesus shows to them that they can't depend on their own strength and their own talents and their own wealth if they desire true life. To have that, we must buy it from Jesus. We must depend on Jesus. Jesus says, Those whom I love, 
I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. He's not saying these things because he hates them and that he's angry and mad at them. He's saying these things because he loves them. Now, one of the most vivid stories I can think of from my own life, of a demonstration of someone being rebuked and disciplined, is the first time my family went up Mount Snowden. We got most of the way up, and then we started coming down in the dusk, and we actually lost track of where the path was. And Dad went on ahead to try and find the path to guide us down safely. And Johnny decided that we were on this ledge, and he was going to stand right over at the edge and lean right over the edge. And I've never seen Mum move faster. In one superhuman movement, she grabs him and pins him behind herself for quite some time, explaining very rapidly and repeatedly, don't go near the edge of the mountain. Johnny was rebuked. He was not punished, but he was disciplined. He was instructed. He was shown that actually in this situation, leaning right over the edge of a very high up mountain in the dark is not a good idea. And it's this same concept that Jesus has here. Jesus may not be pinning us to a wall, saying, don't do this. But we all have those things that we do that we know we ought not to do. And it is these things that he says we should earnestly repent of, that we should turn away from. Now, in the Greek, the word for earnest and the word for hot have the same root. So when he says, be hot or cold, and be earnest... He's saying, be hot, be on fire for God, trust me, depend on me. Get excited about this and throw everything you have into your relationship with me. Because look, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him, and he with me. We find that to be righteous, to live in right relationship with God, there is nothing that we can do of ourselves. We don't have to try and figure out the great existential and moral dilemmas of life on our own. But rather, instead of having to pursue a truth that is out there where we have to do this and that and follow this path and do this thing, we find that the truth comes to us in our everyday lives and our everyday situations, no matter who we are. Jesus died for all of humanity, and yet he knocks on our doors individually. His Holy Spirit encounters our consciences, and stirs up our hearts to hear Christ. He comes for each of us, so that when we hear his voice in the knocking, we will open up and find ourselves in the presence of God. And if we hear his call, if we answer that knocking, then we don't just have a mere introduction to someone that's going to save you from hell. We enter into fellowship with the Lord of everything, the Amen, the faithful and true witness, and we will eat with him, And this eating with him is clarified in the Greek to indicate the main meal of the day, something that would have been a regular occurrence where people would have stopped and gathered and socialized together. And this is what Jesus is inviting the church of Laodicea to take part in. And this this invitation extends to all who hear Jesus' voice reaching out to them in their lives, including us today. In a short while, we'll be having communion and As I speak, it is my hope and prayer that you will hear what the Spirit wishes to say to us as a church. I hope that you have heard the gospel proclaimed, and it is either clicking for the first time, or it is once again renewing and encouraging you as you walk through your life with Christ. Now when we take communion, let us remember Jesus. 
Let us believe that the Holy Spirit is present and that we are feeding upon Christ in our hearts. When we talk about communion, we're talking about fellowship. We're both God and with each other. We are one body because we eat of one bread. And when we eat of that bread, we are joined into who Jesus is. We are identifying ourselves with him and with every other Christian that is taking communion today. As we head up to Laurel, I ask that you remember the people either side of you. In Christ, the people next to you are your brothers and sisters. As much as we might have different views on the way things should be done or how we should do certain things, we're not competing strangers. But we are joined together in Christ as brothers and sisters, eating of the same bread. And as we are joined with Christ, we then drink the wine and remember his blood that was shed for us for the forgiveness of sins. Today is a day of forgiveness, of reconciliation, of relationships repaired and friendships restored, both with ourselves and God. It is precisely this that Jesus wanted for the Church of Laodicea, to have fellowship with them. And it is this that he desires of us today, to have fellowship with us. Lastly, he offers this wonderful end. He says, To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Just a few verses ago, the lukewarm church was in danger of being spat out and rejected. Yet now they are offered a seat with him on his throne. The highest of honours can be given even to those of us that seem and feel like we are the most lowly and insignificant of people. Even those of us that feel like we did that one thing once, it was too bad for anyone to forgive. Or those of us that feel like, well, I just don't matter. Jesus isn't interested in me. It's to people like that, to people like us, that Jesus says, that we will be able to sit with him on his throne. Christ sits with his heavenly Father upon the throne, and we who are identified in, with, by, and through Christ are to be confident of what he has done, and to know that his sacrifice for us is effective eternally. Just as he is the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation, we can know that we are loved by God. And nothing in all of reality can separate us from that love. And someday, someday we shall sit upon that frame of Christ as sons and daughters of God. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Amen.